This episode is brought to you by freedadcourse.com. You are always one conversation away from changing your life, and the power of hello is something that I subscribe to every single day, and I'm always saying hello to new people everywhere I go. Increasing your opportunity, increasing your connection, and getting access to the solutions to the problems that you are facing, whether you're on active duty or just beginning your veteran transition or even transitioning out for 20 years. On the other side of hello are the solutions that you're looking for. Again, head on over to freedadcourse.com. Get your five-episode audio course to create more connection, create more friendships, and get back to living the life that you're trying to design. How does Darth Vader like his toast? On the dark side. Guys, this is your weekly reminder that I hope solidifies through the episodes to lighten up and live. You only get one chance at the day, and don't take it too serious. Dory 1, this is Fireteam Delta. Dad's coming home. Welcome to the Military Veteran Dad Podcast, where it is our mission to bring every dad home. I am your host, Ben Colloy. I'm a United States Marine veteran, husband, and a father. We will bring authentic conversations to inspire action in your life so we can close the gap between the dad you are today and the dad you want to be tomorrow. This is the Military Veteran Dad Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back. It is episode 126. Can you believe it? I honestly don't. I record this podcast every week and I am still shocked that we are at 126 episodes. But this episode, I'm going to pull back and I'm going to be a little bit raw. Now, that might be a little bit astonishing based on some of the episodes that I've had coming up lately, but I'm going to go a little bit more because this month is special. June is Mental Health Awareness Month. And what a great episode that this is to bring this all-important topic of PTSD in the veteran community to the forefront of our lives. But... I want to cut through the bullshit really quickly here before we get started. I want to talk to the listener. You know who I'm talking about. Not you, not you, but you. That you might be listening to this. You might have listened to Virginia Cruz's episode and thinking, this episode, man, another PTSD episode, great. Another episode that I don't need. Because I got it figured out. I challenge that narrative and ask you this all-important question that we dive into this episode. Do you feel whole? Do you feel walking around that there's not a piece missing? If you did not answer that question with the answer of I feel whole, there's something missing. Then you are lying to yourself about what you can handle. The people around you know and see the truth. And my big question to you is when are you going to wake the fuck up and see it? Now that might have been a little bit harsh and a little in your face, but I'm not sorry. This issue is hurting too many in the veteran and active duty community to not speak the truth in the most direct, blunt, and direct brazen fashion that I know. Virginia Cruz and the way she delivered her message has really encouraged me that it is time to 
knife hand the issue right in the face that we have to no longer sugarcoat this issue and we need to talk the truth into people that need to hear it. And if you've been listening to this podcast for any given time, I have been speaking to you, but maybe I haven't really been speaking directly to you. And I hope that me calling out your BS gets you to wake up, find someone that you can reach out to, and live a whole life. You are not destined to feel like you're missing something. That is not how life is wired. And that is not how you're designed to experience it. And that's not a prison that you have to put yourself through any longer. So enough of my rant. Let's get started with telling you a little bit about who Dr. Pamela Hall is. Ever since Dr. Pam started her career in psychotherapy over 30 years ago, she's borne witness to the patterns of PTSD. It's pain, shame, blame, and avoidance. She's facilitated and witnessed recovery. She knows there are solutions. Recovering from PTSD is hard, but living with PTSD is harder. Dr. Pamela Hall is a forensic and clinical psychologist and a subject matter expert in post-traumatic stress disorder. She's spoken with thousands of veterans, and although their stories are all unique, PTSD is not. It doesn't care how stoic, brave, smart, quick, commanding, or strong you are. It doesn't care what came before or what the violent exposure was, where or how many times. Any violent event that can cause a trauma memory, and that trauma memory will not loosen its hold until it is mastered. Not an easy task. That is why she and her colleagues wrote PTSD Unplugged, so those who are trauma-affected can become trauma-informed consumers of the recovery resources. We mentioned a lot of different resources. All of those are in the show notes that you can go find over at militaryveterandad.com or in the bottom of the podcast player that you may be listening to this episode on. Without further ado, let's get started with Dr. Pamela Hall, and I'll be with you on the other side for my big takeaway. Welcome to the podcast, Pamela. Thank you, Ben. Good to be here. Today, we have another special episode on PTSD because June is Mental Health Awareness Month, and this topic is just, I feel like just getting started, even though I've been talking about it for two and a half years. And she wrote a book about PTSD as well, just like Virginia did. And so, Pamela, go ahead and tell us about what prompted you to write this book and where you feel like PTSD is at in our current culture. All right. Well, a couple and a half years ago, my friends uh, were telling me that they were getting really tired of me complaining about the current state of treatment availability and uh, support services for veterans with PTSD, whether that's from combat or or workplace injury, workplace, the, the training events that are so life-threatening or, or military sexual trauma, the treatment access has been frustrating to me. In 2008, I started doing these uh, VA benefits exams. And in 2018, I was hearing the same stories about frustrated efforts to recover and get your life back. So um, I started writing this book and one day I woke up and thought the title ought to be PTSD Unplugged. And the thought being unplugged from what? Unplugged from the BS that goes around PTSD. Unplugged from the stigma, 
that people are reporting symptoms only to get a benefit. Unplugged from the stigma that you can't get better from this. Unplugged from the stigma that you're weak or damaged goods if you have PTSD. None of that is true. PTSD doesn't care whether you're smart or brave or strong. It's a neuropsych- There's a neuropsychological thing that's going on in our brains when, when PTSD happens. And uh, that's what my book is about, about trauma memory, the impact of trauma memory, how to reconnect with your families, which is why I love this ability to be on this podcast, because that's what service members want to do more than anything is reconnect with their kids, connect with their spouses. And so those are the things I address in the book. So before we hit record, you told me that out of the 8,000 people or 6,000, six or eight, either one, it's a big number, people that come into your office looking to be examined for a VA disability claim for PTSD, what is that one thing that they answer to, why now? Why now? Because my spouse is ready to leave or is just left because my kids are jumpy when they're around me and I my impatience is making them be afraid of me and I can't go to their games because I can't deal with the people behind me or around me. I'm jumpy everywhere I go. I'm staying locked up in my garage while they're out having a good time. It's just presents a problem after problem being the family man that I want to be or the family woman, I guess. So So let's go knock off some lies right away. So a veteran that just came in to be examined, they've given you that why now. What do you think the most common bullshit that they're telling themselves that prevented them from coming earlier? I can get over this myself. This is going to go away. This is going to fade. I'm... If I tell anybody this is happening, I'm not going to get my security clearance. These are all like evenly significant thing. If I tell anybody this is happening, I'm going to lose my job. I won't be able to be a cop. Right now, a trend that's going on is uh, just before 9-11, a whole bunch of people normal number of people enlisted or commissioned in the military and started their careers. It's now 20 years later. Their whole career has been about these wars, these military actions, these deployments, and they've promoted through their careers. So they've been in the Humvee, on the gun. They've been the tank commander. They've been the mission lead, they've been the regional lead, they're higher ranking NCOs and commissioned officers, and they have not reported PTSD for 20 years because they knew that like many other people, they would be medically discharged if they reported symptoms and they kept their careers and they worked fine in their jobs, but their family life suffered. And so they're right now I'm doing a lot of those kind of exams. Um, So these are, these are, are they the lies they're telling them? This is the reality that they're experiencing. 
Um, yeah. Let's go towards a myth that I'm not actually sure. So I'm interested as a almost a curiosity. Are there career protections for someone active duty who says they have a problem? I'm not aware of any. Uh, I'm really not aware of any at all. It all has to do, boils down to um, worldwide deployability. So if a person is not found to be deployable, then their career is over. And if a person is found to have post-traumatic stress disorder because of combat exposure, it would be very difficult to be determined to be found to be worldwide deployable. Um, now, in the civilian, on the civilian side, we have the Americans with Disabilities Act. But if you've got four guys or gals applying for a one law enforcement job and one of them is not service connected for PTSD and three of them are service connected for PTSD, that doesn't even have to be discussed. That's just something that's known. So um, I do think there's a lot of barriers um, for people to report and get the help that they could use. Um, and they go on and they continue to work just fine, but they're not getting help because they're not reporting. I'm not sure if you have an advice for that active duty member. How, how do you help someone that is on active duty work through that question, career or family? Because for most of the military service, they focus on their career and it's about you're serving your country. It's 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 almost sold as higher than family, like you're doing this bigger cause. How would you help a veteran or an active duty member work through that question? Because to me, it seems like it's own hell all alone. Whether you get a PTSD diagnosis or not, choosing family over what you wanted your entire life, maybe, I don't see a good way through that. To me, I think it's uh, it behooves the military to provide avenues for confidential discussion. Half, half the time, things aren't as bad as, well, things, things aren't as bad as a person thinks they are because they're bad because they're not disclosing it, because they're just holding it themselves. So I can tell you the three things that service members tell me that they do. Uh, one is access military one source, because there's not a command um, referral uh, mandate uh, for reporting of symptoms. There's no fine print. <laughs> With military one source. Whereas if you go to on-base uh, mental health, um, the likelihood that something that sniffs of PTSD being reported to command is pretty high. And then that starts a certain ball rolling that you may not be able to control. So go off base, military one source. That's what the guys tell me. Number two, they tell me that they go talk to chaplains. So chaplains have under article 10, um, the ability to maintain confidentiality by virtue of, of the cloth. Uh, so guys go to chaplains. Gals, guys and gals go to chaplains. Um, the third uh, thing that they do um, <laughs> just escaped my little brain, actually. So I'll come back to that later. There, there is a third option that they go for. Oh, I got it. Um, when they're downrange nowadays, there's embedded 
psychology people, you're mandated to go talk to them. Go talk to them. Tell them the truth. I mean, size them up first, but tell them the truth. And, you know, get help immediately for what's bothering you. I mean, why would it, you know, we, we make things into PTSD that are things that just should bother the normal person. Why wouldn't it bother you that you just witnessed what you witnessed? You just endured what you endured. You just ordered your troops to do what you ordered your troops to do. Talk those things out before they get stuck in your craw, you know, so go to the embedded mental health people size them up disclose accordingly i'm curious if you were president for a day how would you solve this problem in this particular one is it more just extending the civil rights disability act within the military to include this type of protection is that as simple as it is or is i'm sure it's more complex obviously but is it just creating workplace protections for people to do this safely yes and also being realistic about deployability. How many times do you want to go to combat? The more times, the more exposure you have to trauma events, the more likely you are to develop a PTSD condition. So let's say you're not all the way there after deployment one, deployment two, maybe you are all the way there. You're having nightmares. There's moments in time that are frozen in time. And those are the moments that then will affect you in a subsequent deployment. How many deployments is enough deployments? So 4 million people deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan in the last 20 years. Half of them went for one deployment. Oh, gee. Do you know, do you know about statistics that, you know, 40% of all statistics are made up on the spot? So um, I... Right now, I don't have those numbers solid in my brain, but how many people went on two deployments? How many people went on three plus deployments? How many National it, Guard went back to normal right after war? How many National Guard people went from pumping gas and fixing cars to, you know, six weeks of combat training to one year of deployment in Ramadi back home to fixing cars in less than six weeks. It's crazy. It's like Vietnam all over again. That's what happened in Vietnam to our draftees, you know? So yeah, it's a crazy turnaround for national guard. Let me ask you this other question. So in the episode with Virginia, she talked about it being curable. And that is something that with you talk about within your book as well, that it's not like a lifelong sentence or a lifelong asshole best friend that you can't get rid of in your head. Why isn't it something that you're just, it's treated with not the, we talked, we joked about Motrin and water, but like, why isn't it something like the military wants to treat if it is something that just needs treatment I mean, people break their legs. They don't automatically get kicked out. It's something that heals them. There's many people that still continue to serve. So like, why isn't PTSD looked at something that we just need to put them through a treatment plan and they're still ready to do whatever we need them to on the other side? Well, I think that's, that's part of the motivation for the book too. So back in 2010, um, we already knew that uh, PTSD was like, an event that happens that kicks up a, do you want the full neuropsych at this point? That that kicks up the amygdala in the brain. Uh, 
piles the, the sights, sounds, smells, feels of what's going on in the moment comes into the amygdala. The amygdala says, hey, wait a minute, this is a dangerous situation, shuts down the right side of our brain, activates the left side of our brain, moves us into self-protective mode and protection of the people around us. So people will call that fight, flight, freeze. That's our, you know, our action response. I, I call this the action activator. Action is activated. And so for the military service member, if you've been trained well, uh, muscle memory kicks in. So you march well, you drive well, you follow all your muscle memory guidance that you've had, and uh, you survive the moment other people don't. You see things that I've never seen in my life. You see things that the majority of citizens never see in their life except on TV. So you're immediately confronted with these life-threatening circumstances. And at least a third of the time, those circumstances get caught on repeat. And so this is the neuropsychology of PTSD that is a line of knowledge that we have had for at least 10 years. We can see this happening in spec scans and PET scans, which are like MRIs or CAT scans, but that measures the blood flow and the neuron activity in our brain. So we can see what's working hard and what's not working at all. And so in PTSD, what's working very hard is the left side of our brain, the action-oriented side of our brain. And when a memory gets caught on repeat, a moment in time, frozen in time, that's trauma memory. When that trauma memory happens, it reactivates that left side brain functioning. We go back into fight, flight, freeze, muscle memory mode. So um, this is what makes it different. Could the military have an intervention that will unstick that trauma memory? Sure. Just as much as we could be doing it in private sector but we're not doing it as, as a standard course of treatment. Some of us are, some of us know uh, cognitive processing therapy, prolonged exposure therapy, EMDR. There's also other, I prefer a narrative trauma response approach. That's uh, something It's maybe because of my being long in the tooth in, in psychology. To me, this is a process that we could totally be engaging in in, in uh, the military, uh, but typically people aren't pushed into treatment until there's a substance abuse problem, and then that becomes the distractor, that becomes the focus, and uh, not the trauma memory. So, I want to do an exercise I don't think I've ever done here. And I'm not sure whether where your mind's going to go or how you're going to answer, but I want you to go with me. I want to go in a time right. machine back okay. to 1980, because that's when you said you really started firing up on this PTSD. And I'm sure you were part of a small group of 100 people in the United States, but even probably knew what the word was or were even worried about trying to study it. What were some of the things that we really had wrong from that very beginning, from what you've learned from the very beginning, and now what you know better about what we know with PTSD? One thing that we had wrong back then, 
is that insight into what was happening could help a person recover. So we use that in all of our mental health treatment insight. Um, even if you're a behaviorist, you're using insight. You're trying to teach somebody why they're behaving the way that they're behaving so that they get it and then behave differently, right? So your ABC, ABCs of behavior, um, action, behavior, consequence. Do you like the consequence? Well, no. Well, then change your behavior in response to the activity that's going on around you. So we made the error that we could work backwards like that, like we do with everything else because of trauma memory, because trauma memory is something that actually lays down on the brain. Now we see that trauma memory lays down in the brain in a very similar way to traumatic brain injury, the soft brain injuries, the concussive brain injuries. And so when we look at these spec scans, we see that there's an actual something going on in the brain that's different from any other kind of mental health injury. So trauma exposure injures the brain at physically, neuropsychologically. So if we're not going to address that, we the rest of it doesn't work. And so it, you don't recover because the nightmare brings you back to Iraq, brings you back to Fallujah, you know, back to Kandahar. That smell um, of something. That, that, that smell, that smell, because this moment in time, frozen in time is like a nugget in your brain. And when there's a smell, a sight, a sound, the muffled sound of an explosion on the 4th of July, even if you're miles away from, from where these explosions are occurring, it sounds like the oof of a mortar round. That will pop your memory open. And now all of what happened on that day comes into your brain and your brain has to sort out between what you can smell in your real life versus what's coming out of that trauma memory. This is what I describe in chapter two of the book in detail, comparing the difference between regular memory and trauma memory. That's why it doesn't get better. That's why it's not easy to get better. It's very hard to get better, actually, because you're fighting against the way your brain absorbed that moment. Um, People don't like it. I mean, if I get hate mail, it will be about that. I want to go back a little bit further. When we can't, so one thing I've always wondered with this PTSD is how did it work for World War II, where there was almost, I would say, more severe, and almost everybody that was in battle experienced something on a more grander scale, even. Was there something like psychologically different about the culture of America that brought people back home? Was it the, the spur of the 1950s that kind of suppressed all of what they went through? Or was it the that the fact they just went to the Great Depression and they've already knew hardships? Have you? I'm sure you've seen and done even VA examinations on people from that time frame. So I'm wondering, like, where was the difference in what went through there and what we're feeling now? Well, I think the last thing you said is the thing that was the most that that would probably have the most uh, cultural effect back then is uh, that they had just been through the Depression. They had known hardship. We're in a whole different scenario right now. Um, Used to be violence happened quite a bit more frequently. Deprivation occurred more frequently. 
um, let's say pre-1950, pre-1960. Um, well, hell, we got to go all the way to the 80s before uh, violence doesn't affect people in the home, be be before there were laws against violence in the home, for crying out loud. It was the 1980s before there were laws in all 50 states where you couldn't beat up your spouse. How about that? So that it was just normalized that there would be violence. But I think that actually the, the myth is that guys from World War II had less trouble with PTSD than people do now. Um, the first chapter of our book is uh, written by Cindy Matthews, the granddaughter of uh, Chet, uh, Captain Chet, Graham, um, who was the uh, who was a captain at D-Day, paratrooper, 82nd Airborne. He lived his whole life with PTSD. You read that first chapter and you'll read about PTSD from World War II. Um, we call the chapter bringing the war home. I, so I can see um, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can also see something that just floored me when I was researching this book on YouTube right now, you can look up a movie called Let There Be Light. Uh, Let There Be Light was commissioned by the army in 1946 as a documentary on a bunch of guys uh, who were hospitalized for battle fatigue, battle neurosis. These were the labels for PTSD in World War II. And it followed these guys through various treatments. First interview, if you wanna see what I do for a living, watch this movie from 1946, watch the psychiatrist and how they interview these guys. It's very similar to what I do now. Watch the treatment interventions. There's more hypnosis in, these, in this video. It's a 60 minute video. Here's the thing though. So it was intended to be one of these kind of movies that went out into movie theaters, right? It was not released. It was never released. It was directed by John Huston, famous war director, director of war films with Audie Murphy, most decorated soldier from World War II. They produced a number of war films after this. He was brought in by the army to direct this documentary it was never released. It could have been released. Go watch it. It'll probably piss you off as much as it pissed me off to see how much we knew about how to be helpful. But it never went forward. It didn't go forward. PTSD, I could probably, from what yeah, Virginia said, where people were like, there was more of a, a conditioning after World War II of, of how do we train that like putting the the actual person as a black target at the end of a rifle range type mindset versus like, how do we right. fix the, the problem through what you've just mentioned in that movie? Right, right. Well, it's, uh, you know, the military has to do what they have to do. It's a functioning organization. They have a mission to protect and defend the United States. You know, somebody has said, if you want to plan for peace, you have to plan for war. Right. So I appreciate the military, um, the things that the, the trainings that need to occur so that we have a, 
a bona fide, legitimate fighting force. I'm, I have great respect for all of that. What the military could do better is recognize that every bit as much as a 70 pound rucksack across uneven terrain creates back injuries. So multiple exposures to trauma events leads to PTSD. It's just a given. So um, we could stop being surprised. I interviewed someone in the Canadian Army, which was the first time I had done that or crossed the border to interview someone up there. And they talked about how there's almost like a required VA out processing in Canada to like, it's not just like, here's your two day EAS time at some base where they give you your DD 214 to make sure you cross your eyes and dot your T's. Right. Like it's an actual making sure we know exactly who you are, where you are and what what's left of you maybe in some cases on the way out to make sure that you are set up with the civilian world and to understand the condition before and after. It's almost like the outgoing of maps from inbound, just the opposite of it. And something as simple as that even, of instead of like, give us paid seven day vacation to come back home, go to the VA, go through this process that the VA wants you to go through. So that way everybody gets a VA examination on their full psyche and their ability. And that it's an automatic process. It's not, you choose to get verified or a rating from the disability claims. It's, this is mandatory on the way out to get say X benefit or something. I like that. I like that a lot. I think we need to know the scope of this because it's a scary it statistic. We were <laughs> yeah. going to make up more statistics. Like VA only knows about thirty percent of veterans after they leave. Like you think of the like the ability for the VA to fix different things. They don't even know where the v- the veterans are for the most part on the other side. Unless somebody chooses to file a claim, which is such a hurdle to begin with, because if you don't have a physical injury, you don't feel entitled to file a claim. This and PTSD, just to have a mental health issue is in our society, culturally, in Canadian society, too, by the way, in all, you know, any Western society, we have a mental health crisis, any Western society, you're judged as being weak, morally deficient in the military. We'll add the word not resilient. Yeah, the army has that buzzword that they love. You know, so what's resilience? Uh, To me, you can't be resilient if you don't look at the injuries that you have so that you can recover from them. I would love to see everybody in a bona fide way examined leaving the military. You also reminded me of something that I use to describe the word integrity, which is in almost all the branches, core values. And I describe integrity as breaking it down to a whole number, an integer for mathematics. And with mathematics, an integer is a whole number. And to me, Mm -hmm. on the way out and the way you should answer, do I go to the VA or not? Do you feel whole? Because if you're not living a life of integrity, do you not feel whole and you feel fractioned? Because the opposite of an integer is a fraction. If you feel fractioned, there's something missing and you should go figure out what. You're objected to live life. The life of purpose, the life that you want to live is to live a whole life, not a fraction one. And I would bet nine to one that every veteran that comes out doesn't feel whole. They feel something's off. And to me, that's a basic definition of integrity. And we all know what it means to live a life of integrity. And we should continue to live that on the other side and apply it in this simple uh, mathematical form as well. 
So let's go into a new area. You have something that you want to also point out that we often get the PTSD diagnosis wrong. That it is, it is the buzzword everybody does know about, and they either run from it or hide from it. But in some of the cases that you run into, it's neither. Right. Talk about that. Right. right. So I like to say it, the most famous diagnosis that comes out of war is PTSD, but it's not the only mental health issue comes out of war. You know, uh, say you're say you're a female downrange, and uh, you encounter gender-based, sexual-based harassment within your troops or by the locals who uh, require you to behave in certain ways because you're female. For instance, females are off, were often for a long time not allowed off base in Iraq or Afghanistan unless they wore a Punjab. And so here you are going out. I think that's the right word. <laughs> anyway, here you are going off base, uh, completely covered and returning um, to live what is your normal life uh, on base in uh, American uh, military garb. So there, there are those experiences that females have. Um, and they'll report that and, and request a PTSD examination. Well, if they've been assaulted sexually or if they've been assaulted physically by virtue of being female, uh, downrange, that could be a PTSD diagnosis. But if what they did was lived in this uh, derogatory negative environment toward female, if that was the environment they're experiencing, they're more likely to be depressed and anxious less, and they won't have the characteristic trauma memory that is sort of the beginning of the PTSD diagnosis. So uh, what I hear yeah. in that is also like it, the environment they lived in almost was an affirmation of a limiting belief more than it was a psychological trauma. It's just something they've chosen to believe and they can't not believe it until someone kind of comes in. And this is almost where what you said about insight therapy, it is about the insight into this limiting belief and letting them know it is it is there. You're choosing to live with this belief and you have the ability to change that belief. And because it's not connected to that muscle memory, it's not connected to that trauma moment, it is where inside th therapy allows you to move through it in a very easy fashion. Once you realize you can choose to make a new reality, it's pretty straightforward from there. Again, well put and good connect. That's exactly right. Exactly right. And when you're a treating provider and you do the insight work and you see somebody not getting better you have to ask yourself, is there trauma here? And that's, you know, actually you should ask yourself that at the beginning when you know somebody has been in a high incident trauma environment like Kandahar, um, you know, like who cares Baghdad in the green zone, same high incident likelihood possibility of trauma, just going from the green zone to the medical corps. Uh, you have to drive along the streets of Baghdad in a up-armored Humvee, you know? So you have stuff always that you can ask about if you are a trauma-informed treatment provider. I want to see a higher percentage 
of military folk receiving expert level trauma-informed treatment, which means that they'll either get the trauma-related treatment that they need or this more insight-oriented or kind of however people process things, different approaches are good for different people. You know, so um, there's multiple approaches you can use for uh, that insight-based interventions. But if there's trauma, that needs to have a specific approach. We do have evidence that shows that these kinds of approaches, CPT, prolonged exposure, EMDR, have an impact on that neuropsychological process of trauma memory. And that's what we want to have. And also, the way you pointed this out of the distinction of having PTSD and not there's this other, if we go back to what we were talking about with in the in your career while serving, you could easily have something that isn't even considered something that's a career ender, but in your side, your head, you tell it it's a career ender. And it's something that you need two to three sessions to get a good reframe on it. And you're back to normal. Well, it, ex- exactly. The whole not talking about it can start feeling like PTSD. So people will say, I've got PTSD because I don't want to talk about my feelings, you know, uh, well, generally speaking, talking about feelings is actually a thing that humans ought to do, whether you're male, female, a first responder, or an infantry soldier. If we can't learn that skill, and I appreciate how you are articulating things, and I've, you know, listened to some of these prior podcasts that you've done, you know, we need guys to be demonstrating how guys articulate this stuff. You know, um, females articulate or people from a feminine perspective articulate emotions in some ways that are off-putting to, you know, this, this approach. What I think of actually as the protector defender approach, um, you're not going to run toward danger and ask yourself, how is this making me feel? You're just going to run toward danger, take care of the problem, get it done, go back. But now you need that skill of knowing how to talk about how that impacted your emotions. And sometimes just getting locked in that emotional reaction can feel like PTSD, but isn't. And if it's the only psychological buzzword that you know. I mean, you can fit anywhere. You can fit anything in your side. Your your, oh, your head yeah. can logically tell itself to kill yourself. And it can easily just come to the same conclusion. Well, I must have PTSD because that's what I hear everybody else has. Why not right. to make it true? Because I can make anything else true. Right. So if we could only move this dialogue about PTSD to talk about trauma memory and get people educated about what trauma memory is, and how it loops and sort of re-injures the brain, the heart, the mind, you know, that rolls out as a re-injury almost and every time a lot of times, a nightmare. Even just from like an energy perspective, you can feel like stomach pain and think like you have a Western diagnosis that you have something wrong in your stomach. But a lot of times it's just the unspent process energy of what your body still has as this moral injury or trauma inside your head. And it can cause right. anything to really like if your back had a spasm during that memory, you could walk around with a back problem your entire life and never know that it was related to this incident of how your body is responding to this unprocessed energy. Like it's it's all right there, but you have to have the knowledge to reframe it. And 
You also have something within this book about something that's near and dear to my heart, which is conversations and conversations as a modality of healing. Tell us a little bit about how a conversation can literally change your life in the context of helping you heal through what veterans need to hear. What would you say, Ben, what are the main reasons why vets don't talk to their spouses or family members or friends about combat? I would say it would be a couple different things. One, they won't understand, so why try? A fear of being judged because of the superhero complex that we put this uniform on where we were more than who we are. And often taking that off, when we, when we go back from to Clark Kent, we don't know who we are. And so there's just insecurity around that. So I can't reveal what's really going on in my head. And it just kind of creates this narrative. I, I can't let someone else figure it out that I'm not really who I said I was. So now you put all that in the context of being 18 to 24 years old. Who the hell at that age knows how to define themselves? Anyways, we're all uh, working. Yeah, progress. we're all still trying to figure out what we want to do when we grow up. Oh I'm my still, god, I'm 36 and I'm still working on that. Right. Well, welcome, welcome to life. So I'm 60 now. I gotta say, I'm not working on that as hard as I used to work on. And now you figured out you should publish <laughs> off for many years ago. Well, no, I never wanted to write a book, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I I like working with people. I like I'm a worker. I'm a worker. I've always read what other people wrote and wanted them to do a good job doing that, but I never wanted to be in that tower in particular, you know. I like being amongst the people. Um so what was the question? Oh yeah. So how to get these conversations going? Certainly the listener has to not judge. And how do we stop judging? We stop judging by learning and empathizing. So first of all, civilians have to learn about what it is to swear service to the damn country. You know, um, it's not a small thing when a person raises their hand and swears to protect and defend that probably comes from a very deep self-identity spot, at least for most people. You know, there's always exceptions, and there are probably a lot of exceptions to this, but, but this is what I feel like it comes back to for people, um, civilians not getting that idea that I, I chose to enlist or commission, but I did that out of the, the motivation of service. I want to protect and defend this thing that we call the United States or Canada or you know the, the free world as it were, the dem- democratic lifestyle, the lifestyle that says you get to say what you wanna say, you get to be who you wanna be. You know, people get very fervent about that. We talk about patriotism. But I think it's just really fervent belief that people ought to be able to be who they want to be. And so folks who swear to service, I think that's the first thing that people listening to service members need to understand. So what are my primary motivations? Actually, that is a primary motivation for me, you know, but what are my other primary motivations? Or if I don't have that motivation of service, 
how am I going to understand that that fuels all the choices? Um, so I want to educate civilians about that. I'm trying to come up with language, you know, statements to articulate that the way you articulate that. How do you communicate to a military spouse that service to the country is a strong, strong motivator? Um, so that's important in the conversations. And in the conversations, it's important to want to know as the listener um, about all of the military service. How was boot camp? So there, there's a chapter in my book that just lays out a list of questions, a list of things you should be, you could be, I hate the word should, you could be curious about if you want somebody to tell you about their combat deployment. You, you could be curious about their boot camp, about their battle buddy, about their uh, MREs, about what was talked about in the smoke pit. You know, you got to know that there's this whole life that happens before and after the mission. And what is that life like? You got to be okay with the humor. You know, you got to be okay with the humor. It gets very dark. And again, I want to say 18 to 24 year old people who run toward danger are not going to have gentle humor and it's, it's a muscle happen. memory as well because even just getting around <laughs> the marines i'll flash back and my language and the i go I'll, I'll the filters will go off my subconscious goes off and it's right back into marine talk without even thinking about it yeah yeah it is muscle memory and and it's it's the within the ranks how do people the buddy system that's there so that's another layer that civilians don't really get is the intensity of the of the relationships, of the bond that gets created. Um, the only thing I can compare it to in my life is going to summer camp and how intense those friendships became in such a short period of time. But then we all went home and it didn't continue. For you guys, you go to this intense summer camp they call boot camp, <laughs> summer camp. And, uh, and then you come out of that, you go, to, you go to your advanced training where you learn how to do your job and then six months later, at 18 years and six months, you're suddenly in charge of keeping weapons working. <laughs> you're suddenly in charge of, you know, of us, you're a platoon leader if you have leadership skills. You know, you're in charge of things that an 18 and a half year old back home, no clue. What is it you about know? a conversation that helps a veteran heal? Being able to put the incident, the trauma event in the context of the whole of the deployment. So these trauma events become the, the because of how they simmer, settle down in the brain, it's like they get pulled out of time. This is where my, you know, my colleagues will ask me, what is your theoretical orientation? So I'll tell them all my theoretical orientation is narrative psychology. I think it matters how we tell our stories. And so if our story has this moment in time that's taken out, well, we need to put that back in our story. So when somebody is about to tell you what happened, which is my little phrase for, so what happened? 
you know, everybody knows what I'm talking about. When I ask what happened, their, their mind immediately goes to what happened. And so that moment in time when their life was in danger or somebody died or there was a child whose life was taken or the things that get to you guys are the things that make a hell of a lot of sense to all of us, actually. <laughs> That's a myth that I think service members got to get over real fast is that civilians won't get it. Are you fucking kidding me? Like, I'm not going to get how being with your friend when they were injured, you know, I just content warning problem going on right now. You know, I don't want to trigger stuff, you know, but even just talking about it will trigger it. So, so a person who's listening has got to know that the words that they use are going to trigger the trauma memory. And when the trauma memory is activated, then that's the time when you just listen and you keep the story going until that person is back on base. You know, how did you get out of there? What happened next? That's the conversation that heals. We do that in treatment in a pretty technical way. There are techniques. I don't know how easily translatable they are to people who don't have somewhat of the breadth of treatment uh, training to do treatment. But I, this is the... This is a problem I want to tackle in the future. I want to tackle how do we train friends to be the buddy back home? You had a battle buddy there. You need a bit a buddy back home who gets what it is when you're triggered and how to be there for you when you're triggered. So, yeah, you know what? That, it's yeah. kind of weird. How I feel like my story in this podcast, I found different pieces of the puzzle at different stages in the last two and a half years. And I feel like in 2021, the puzzle picture is really coming together because it was November of 2019. I somehow had the courage to email my daughter's principal and ask, hey, do you need a speaker for your Veterans Day event? And it's just the kids sing song. It's nothing like super crazy, but somehow I did it. And I'm sitting in the audience waiting to get called up to say something. I'm like feeling like anxiety is going to explode in the wall because I'm nervous. Like, how dumb could I be? to invite myself up in front of these, like their kindergarten through third grade. So I mean, a younger crowd to try to tell them about Veterans Day. I'm like, what right. the hell was I thinking? Right. And I went up right. there with this idea of the buddy bench because in the school playgrounds, they always have a bench called the buddy bench. And so if you don't have a friend, you sit on the buddy bench. And so I used that term as the buddy bench. I was like, you know how you have a buddy bench out there and you know how some friends are sitting on that buddy bench waiting for someone to come by and invite them into play? There's a lot of veterans sitting on a buddy bench waiting for that conversation, waiting oh for that Forrest God. Gump moment where <laughs> someone sits down and listens right. to them. Right. And you also inspired something that I often speak about within relationships is don't listen with your ears, but listen with your eyes. And what most men and a lot of men, this really applies to most men have never been seen their entire life. And by seeing, I mean understood of who they are and what shaped them, not even just in the context of military, but in the context of what's shaped them of who they are. What are three to four life events that made them who they are today? And if you give the gift of sight, not so that they can see, but they can be seen, that in itself, like that moves mountains. And I left them with this at a, and I, give, I got this from a friend at Toastmasters is that rainbows only come after a storm. And the reason why you can't find the pot of gold at the end of a rainbow is because someone else is the pot of gold. And you could be the rainbow to someone's storm because veterans have a lot of storms going on. And you could be that rainbow for sitting on that bench, 
and listening to what's going on. And that was almost two years ago. Like, that's why I'm saying the whole thing just kind of came together when you were talking about it there. Yeah. Yeah. You, you do this well, you, and you know what, this is the thing is that people have these skills. It does not really take a trained professional to do well, maybe it does. I mean, you know, baby needs a new pair of shoes and all that. But, you know, so uh, my but my best friend says every if everybody had two best friends, we'd need half the therapists. So, yeah, I think there's, that's I've probably. read I've done uh, <laughs> yeah. speeches to high school teachers and I was doing research on it. And there's research that says a high schooler that has three friends that are close and they're well known by these three friends will have better mental health at 25 than someone that had 20 friends and was popular in high school. They didn't really know who they were and they had to be someone else to be liked. Like the research says that having close friends will increase your mental health because and what you're speaking to is what I've also spoken to is biologically for millennia, we did life in community. We were never wired psychologically to ever think we could manage everything. We always had someone ahead of us and behind us. And I always break it down to the barrel monkey mindset. One hand up asking for help from the people ahead of you. One hand behind you looking for the people that are just getting started that still need to know where that step is. And you can help them. Like in, even just like American Indians. Like you, when you were growing up within that community, there was always someone that led you into the hunting. And there was always someone behind you that was just getting started. Like there was always this doing it together. And in the last 100 years, we've just decided we could do it alone. And we've seen the consequences of what that isolation does. And without even the coronavirus, we've had a pandemic of loneliness for the last 20 years. Just no one's talking about it as much as the other pandemics that get all the headlines. And you also reminded me of this quote that uh, I wanted to bring up because it hit home to what you were talking about. Hurricanes get all the publicity, but termites do more damage. And it's often the termites like friendship. Something is super simple as having a conversation with a stranger, like that does more damage in our society than all the things that you would see on CNN reported through an entire 365 day news cycle. So back to the, the Native American population, or let's just say that the pre-industrial revolution, you know, I, I, I love history. Um, so you were really it, in the zone when I went into the time machine. Oh my God. Yeah, that's like my... It's like candy. So uh, in the past, what was war? War happened because villages were threatened. And so they sent out their villagers to protect their village. Everybody knew why you were going to war. And when the warriors came back to the village, everybody knew everything about what happened. And and they're even... Uh, Sebastian Younger talks about this in his book called Tribe. Awesome book. Um, I referred to it a, a little bit in my book, just with the hope that people would go read that sucker. Um, talked about the stratification of our culture. This is how we welcome vets home now. So our culture is stratified into employment and finances. So um, if a vet can get employed and have a certain financial perspective, well, then that vet reassimilates into our at-home culture. There's no special spot for the warrior or the veteran. And this might be something that's even more pronounced now than it was after World War II. Um, after World War II, though, 
our vets decided against telling anybody about what was going, what happened in war. It, it was the second, second big war that happened where we sent people to war for a concept that wasn't imminently dangerous to my village, but I supported you going to, you know, stop the fascists and this, you know, the, all these watchwords that now are used as daggers in our political environment. You know, we sent people to stop that stuff. And then they came home and they didn't tell us what happened down there, down, downrange. And that has become the model. And I just want to say, how's that working for you? Shitty. That's how that's working for you. I'm Nobody glad we finally got you to start swearing. I feel better. I know. Well, you know, an hour and a half in and here you go. <laughs> so my mom is probably shrinking right now. It's like, Pam, don't swear like that. I blame you guys. If I go home cussing at my mom, I just say it's the Marines I talk to. My dad is a Navy vet, so she made him stop cussing. <laughs> so, you know. Anyway, that's a little segue. That's another story. But um, we don't have uh, traditions in our culture to welcome our soldiers, Marines, Coasties. You know, we, we don't have we don't even understand that the Coast Guard is part of the military in a general way. You know, we don't understand, you know, how to bring our air airmen and women home we don't understand and um really the we only don't time we really yeah. show up is when they're already in a coffin and the best example is when you create those file five mile long trains of people to welcome someone to drive through like when chris kyle came back there's that video in dallas at the end of that movie like that's the closest we get but that is already too late like we need and it's we don't need parades that's not what i would say and i don't think it was what you would say but no. we need the ability to feel safe about telling these stories because these wars are our identity. They are the American identity to the to the outside world. These wars are part of people what they think about America all day long. Except within the borders, we almost separate that we are a country that goes to war quite often, and we almost tell ourselves we're not those people, even though the outside world sees us as these people that do this all the time. Warmongers. Yeah. What is an American, a warmonger? But, you know, but by and large, our culture sees itself as not, well, we're opposed to war. You know, so when I was growing up, I was a young teen and in, in the early 70s, my graduating class was the second graduating class where no one was drafted. So that's where I sit in the Vietnam era. Um, so being this person who's always thought too much about everything, um, I would watch the war protests and I was opposed to the war. I did not understand why also people were opposed to the soldier. So I witnessed this horrific opposition to our returning Vietnam uh, combatants. And, and they're the first to talk about it. Anyway, that's probably another whole discussion that could be had, but I want to just sort of wrap it up this way. And I, I put it like this on my, um, 
book summary on on the webpage uh, Smashwords or major real t- you know real t- uh, retailers uh, book retailers PTSD unplugged. We are mostly opposed to war in our culture, but we can't be opposed to our military, and especially when they come home from war, we can't be opposed to them. And we also cannot neglect them. So just because they don't fit tucked back into our stratified society the way that we would like them to and become civilians again, that's just never going to happen. And we need to not neglect the idea that we have PTSD in our midst everywhere, hundreds of thousands of um deployed persons to Iraq, Afghanistan, have now distributed into our country. And um, Sebastian Younger uh, recommends that we begin having town hall meetings where the stories of war are told. I like the idea. You know what you just remind me? Have you seen the uh, movie with Tom Hanks, News World? I haven't. Oh, you would love it. It would. It's essentially what we, you just said. And it's uh, right after the Civil War. And he came back from fighting in Texas. For, he was he lives in Texas, and he went to fight. I think in the South for the the war. And he comes back, and his wife I think passes away from something, and he just kind of runs away. And he learned to because he could read. He would travel from town to town, and he would have town halls, and people would pay ten cents for him to read the world news. He would have newspapers from all around the country, and he right. would read the news of what was going on in the world. And people would do it like they would right. have. He would have full houses of what would happen in Pennsylvania and what was happening in Europe, and like that. So, exactly so what do you just described? Do we think that we know what's happened in the war because we watched CNN or NBC or? Fox or whatever, whatever our preferences, you know, whatever we watch for news, we don't know. In 2010 and 11, there were things going on in Afghanistan that never made the news, never made the news. And I started hearing about them three years ago. So my experience as a VA benefits examiner is that people are not reporting for 10 years post-deployment, almost like to the, to the dime. And that like actually- the fuse has to be go get like an inch away from the TNT and they're like, oh shit, this thing's about ready oh, to go. Yeah. You know, there's an old saying, wherever you go, there you are. So they've had 10 years of having the same things go sideways with multiple people. So they're like, oh, well, maybe it's me, you know? So- like yay yay for insight you know so I, I i like to harass people um but that's one of my harassments yay for you you know that you picked that up that's great so i i'm gonna look at that um there was another one from the civil war area era that no and them i always forget movie names and actors that's like my my big error spot in my brain. I don't remember stuff, <laughs> but, um, but there are some great movies out right now about what PTSD is and does. I pretty much avoid those movies because they make me crazy because they always depict uh, PTSD as some severe thing that's making people psychotic and, you know, or dangerous or volatile or violent 
And what I like that's going on right now is although it's 10 years later, we're hearing from people with what I think of as mild to moderate PTSD, which is to say symptoms are mild on days when the trauma memory is not activated and moderate on days when the trauma memory is activated. So people will tell you the day after a nightmare, tough day, they don't want to go anywhere. They're jumpier. They're looking over their shoulder all the time. They're pretty sure the car behind them has followed them 10 miles. You know, they're driving various paths to get home. Those days after a nightmare or after an activated memory are very difficult days. Once that simmers down, if they can avoid being activated again, they can go into a mild state where they still make choices to avoid things that are going to activate their memory and people begin to learn what those things are. So their life gets very limited. I can't go to my son's ball game because there's that jerk there who talks bad about the military all the time. That's going to get me going. I can't go. You know, I mean, there's things I could go on. I do go on a little bit in the book about that, by the way. (laughs) So, because I care about you guys and you've done this thing for this country where we all get to go where we want to go and not worry about IEDs or snipers. And you all are still looking up bridges and making sure it's not going to blow up when you go under it, you know, so you, change your drive route home so you can avoid overpasses. You know, this is a mild to moderate situation where a person can isolate enough to stay mild. That's not, that's not a dad, you know, that, you know, coming back to your thing, that's, this is where the dads are just have such a problem with this pattern of symptoms that they experience not getting enough sleep too short with their kids overprotective the kids are going crazy don't want their dads to be so hyper mellow out dad you know so it's important to get that trauma memory taken care of so that you can have the life that you fought for the freedom that you fought for that's where i'm coming from Well, Pamela, that was a great way to wrap up this episode. Is there anything else that we didn't talk about that we need to hit the nail on the head with before we wrap up? I feel good about what we've talked about. Yeah. Ready to put it out in the air now? Let's do it. Well, Pamela, (laughs) thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This episode, just like Virginia's, I am positive, is going to get some positive feedback and hopefully a little bit negative because I feel like we went again raw because when I feel like when these episodes go into these dark areas... And I've almost taken it when the internet starts giving you negative feedback, that's a sign that you're actually hitting the nerve. So this is something that I really want to work on getting out there. And I'm excited and doing more of these conversations. And Pamela, thank you for writing this book, because I know it's going to help bring dads home to their families. And that's what it's all about, especially if you're a veteran, like what you did in your service matters, but it's all in the history books. Your family is the one thing that needs you right now. That's right. I support that. Thank you for taking the time to listen to today's episode. Your time, I know, is valuable. And if you made it to this point, you've been listening for exactly one hour and 17 minutes. And I know that's a lot of time as a dad. We're busy people. Even if you're in the military, it's even more busy. But so 
I won't waste any more time and I'll get right to the cut of what is my big takeaway. The part that I really didn't fully know was the part where she really talked about the culture in the ancient world, essentially, of what that was like for people in that community coming back from war and how everybody shared the experiences of what that was like. And it really spoke to the massive hole, essentially, that we currently have in American culture. And it's an interesting hole. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I didn't sugarcoat in the beginning. I'm not going to sugarcoat this big takeaway. A lot of Americans have this abundant amount of appreciation for veterans. It's almost, especially in the last 20 years, it's almost magnified to everybody feels humbly grateful for us serving our country. And I'm not discrediting that that isn't due. Or I'm not discrediting, if you were a civilian listening to this, that you're doing anything wrong. But I want to speak to the dichotomy that there are a huge amount of population within the country that supports and loves supporting veteran organizations doing good things. But then why is there this gap to really understand what was war like? What really did happen? It's almost like we've been missing this key piece of code to tell us how to connect again. And after I watched that movie, News World, and hearing what Dr. Pamela talked about, that book with tribes, man, that book really resonated, this idea of a town hall to really share a veteran story. I mean, I do this podcast for a living, and it's probably the only reason why I know other people's stories. I can honestly say I don't do a good job going out and listening to random veterans or creating events even to hear those stories. Now, they happen because maybe I'm at an event or speaking or whatnot, but man, the dichotomy and the amount of support that a veteran receives from the American culture, but then also the gap, the lack, the huge black hole of what is not the listening ear to what really life was like. We just assume, because we've heard it on the news, that it must be true. And I'm reminded of a Marine Corps ball, 2004, Okinawa, Japan, that Gunny R. Lee Ermey came to speak to us. We've already thrown the explicit label on this episode, so we might as well go all in. And today, I would like to share an audio clip that I recorded of Gunny R. Lee Ermey giving that speech to us. And this is a particular clip and a story Real life happened. Now, this is 2004, so you can imagine it's out of context a little bit because we've only been in the war for two years now at the point when he was telling this. But the context of really what happens and why storytelling is so important and making sure that it's accurate is highlighted in this, and it is a great story. It's got a lot of just good jokes about everything within the military and the media. So without further ado, here is a bonus clip of Gunny R. Lee Ermey speaking from the grave about his time in Iraq. From what I've seen on CNN, those people had no use for us any damn way. They all hated our guts. Once I got over there, I found out it was totally different. What CNN, the, path, the word that CNN had been passing was incorrect. It was bogus bullshit. That's the way I classified it. But anyway, uh, so I was in Iraq, and I went around and I gave my speech 34 times. I crisscrossed Iraq for an entire seven days, for a week. Um, I talked to the troops. I, I, I spent all my time with the troops. I would go shake hands. We would spend the entire day with the troops. And one of the questions that I would always ask is, how are you? 
And I would get, all right, here you go, Johnny. God damn, I've been hearing on CNN Communist News Network that the morale was falling, going and turning to shit on us over in Iraq. And all of a sudden, these, these young hard-charged devlogs just, just about jumped down the throat every time I asked them a question. Motivated. They were totally motivated. There's no question about it. They, they realized that we're there, we're there to kill the bad guys, the enemy, before, and we didn't take care of business over there. It was going to eventually come over here, and we were going to have to deal with it in America. And they realized how important their task was in Iraq. And that, as far as I'm concerned, is, is motivation and morale. And morale was second to none. Anyway, when I came back home, got back to the States, as soon as I got back, CNN contacted my manager and they said, we heard that Tagani was uh, over in Iraq and we'd like for him to, we'd like to have an interview with him on CNN Live. And I said, I said, okay, we can do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> what did they fuck up? <laughs> so I'm in, I, I went down to the studio, and it was a, a female interviewer, and the first damn question she asked me, the biggest mistake she ever made in her damn career was, we understand that morale Morale is faltering in Iraq. And I said, well, you understand wrong. And I started going on her. And I went on her for, I, I, I shoot her ass out. And played the stranger, by the way, for a good solid five minutes and it was live television, so she couldn't, they couldn't do anything about it. They were stuck. I haven't been invited back. That is all I have for today's episode. I hope this helped. I hope that was a good clip. And at this point, you've now hung on to an hour and 23 minutes of your life. So one, I want to thank you. I realize, again, your time is valuable. Without further ado, closing this episode out, and I will talk to you guys again on Friday. Friday.